Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Let me know. I'll get you some more information. Also, uh, last week I issued a challenge, and the challenge was was to bring a friend. And I said if you bring a friend, I would give you and the, the friend a uh, a gift card to get dinner at, uh, I guess you get lunch, to a Chick-fil-A. And, and Erica brought a friend, so that's great. But... Um, that challenge will still be good next week. So if you guys want to bring a new friend, someone who hasn't been here before, uh, that'll be available to you. Also, I, I've been uh, thinking about, uh, we had that barbecue, uh, not last Saturday, but the Saturday before for Andrew, who was leaving. And that was great. It was a great time just being together at the park. I really enjoyed it. And we want to do something like that again. And just out of a show of hands, I, I, I want to do something, but I, I want people to be available and able to come. Uh, and, and I'm thinking between either like a Friday night or uh, like a Saturday morning, kind of early afternoon. So would anybody be more available on a Friday night or a Saturday? Or it doesn't matter. Well, Friday night. Who wants Friday night? Who 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 thinks uh, who's a night owl and thinks like a Friday night thing would be better? Okay. Uh, who's for Saturday? Okay. All right. We'll put something together soon. So, all right. If you have your Bible, open them back up to Ephesians chapter three. I'm gonna go ahead and read the chapter and pray for us, and then uh, we'll get into it. Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was, or which, has given, or which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light uh, what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart in my tribulation on your behalf, for they are your glory. Father, we need your help. There's a lot here, and a lot of it is difficult to understand. And so I pray for your grace and your spirit to move, Lord, and I acknowledge my need for your help. I prepared stuff, and I think I know what this says, Lord, but I give you my tongue, and, and I ask you to speak truth for it. Jesus, you said, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, and I pray that your truth would be communi communicated today and that the saints would be built up from it, Lord. As Samuel said, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. We echo that same thing. We need to hear from you. We need your wisdom. We need your insight. Uh, help us to understand these mysteries. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So have you ever started praying and then just like a few minutes into your prayer, you get distracted, you start focusing on something else? Like maybe you're praying and someone knocks at your door. You get up to answer your door and then, you know, hours go by and, and you never get back to praying. Or maybe you're praying and, and your phone starts dinging and, uh, or, or someone comes in and, and starts interrupting you. Or, or, or maybe you just start praying and your mind starts wandering. And a few seconds into your prayer, you're thinking about something completely different 
all together. You know, these distractions interrupt my prayer life all the time. I, I've definitely learned some practical things that I have implemented to help me to persevere in prayer and to help me from keeping my mind to wander, but they still happen. It's inevitable that that's going to happen to me. It probably happens to me every single day. Now, I want to say this, that if you're like me, and you're someone who finds difficulty in this, I want you to be encouraged. Uh, because Paul is having the same problem in our passage. Uh, we're in good company. In verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul, he begins to pray, but then he gets distracted. You know, Paul, he's got this pattern that we see uh, in his writing that he shares a little bit of truth, he gives some doctrine, and then he prays for his audience. And this is a great lesson for us to learn. You see, because this same spirit that inspired the word of God is the, also the spirit who illuminates the doctrines or the, the, the theology of the word to its readers or listeners. This is why we see prayer scattered throughout Paul's writings. He knows, hey, just saying doctrine, teaching truth isn't enough. He needs to pray for people that that truth would become part of, would become a reality to them, that they would understand it, that they would eat it, and that's a, a spiritual thing. And in chapter 1 of Ephesians, we saw an example of this. From verse 3 through 14, Paul is giving us doctrine. He, he's giving us the riches that we have in Christ, the blessings that belong to us as believers of Jesus. And then picking up in verse 15, uh, he just starts praying. From 15 to 23, it's actually a prayer of Paul, and praying that the saints would gain enlightenment into these riches, these blessings that he had just prayed for. And this is kind of what's happening here in chapter 3. In the first one of chapter 3, Paul is about to pray these truths that we were talking about in chapter 2, but then something distracts him. And then in verse 14, he picks up his prayer again. For instance, in verse 1, Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. And then in verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father." It's like he started to pray, got distracted, and then, you know, finished his parenthetical thought and then continued praying. And that's what we have in the rest of chapter 3. So verses 2 through 14 have this parenthetical statement by Paul. And, and that's what we're going to look at tonight is, is this statement. However, this parenthetical statement, it, it's not just filler. It, it, it's it's not just some rambling of some man. No, it's spirit-inspired scripture. It's a it's a spirit-inspired holy rabbit hole that communicates important truths for us about the unity of the church and about Paul's heart to minister these truths. You know, when we're spirit-filled or under the influence of the Holy Spirit, even our rabbit trails are, are meaningful and useful to our life. Everything that happens to us, everything that God brings into our life when we're filled with the Holy Spirit has meaning and significance. Now, if we look at these verses from uh, chapter 3, verse 1 through 13, the key word is mystery. Three times the word mystery is used. We see it in verse 3, verse 4, and verse 9. And, and this mystery that Paul is trying to unpack for us, uh, it, it really is the theme of the book of Ephesians. If you look back at chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 uh, with me, we're introduced to this mystery. In verse 9, Paul says, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times that is summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth. It's kind of like this, that the fall happened and then everything got disjointed, got separated, disunified, and, and, and just fell into problems. And God judged the world. Not too long after, in Genesis 6, he flooded it and preserved one family. And remember when Noah and his family got off of the ark? Uh, after that, everybody could trace their lineages back to three guys, 
Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We're all descendants of either Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Right, but then they were, uh, the, the next chapter after that, we have the Tower of Babel. Babel. And from there, they're even scattered further and become their own nations, their own tongues, their own you know, communities. Everything is, is separated. Well, if you read in the book of Acts, in, in chapter 8, there's this guy, this Ethiopian eunuch who gets saved, right? And guess what? He is a descendant of Shem. And then in verse in chapter 9, I'm sorry, the apostle Paul gets saved uh, in, in a radical way, right? Well, he is a descendant of Ham. And then in chapter 10, there's uh, a guy named Cornelius. He's an Italian cohort. Right, and I'll let you guess what who he descended from. It, it's Japheth, right? And so it's like this: uh, because of the fall and because of sin, we've all been separated. We've all been scattered, right? But in Christ, everything is being made new, and all these families, all these people that are separated, are being brought together into one and becoming one again in Christ. He's making all things new. He's summing everything back up together. But for your first fill-in, fill in the word mysteries. In these last days, God has revealed mysteries. God has revealed mysteries to us. And when I talk about the last days, I'm not talking about the way we think of last days like today, where it's like, hey, we're in the last days. I'm talking about biblical last days, which is from the time of Pentecost until the coming of Jesus. Remember on Pentecost? The, the spirit falls on the believers. They're speaking in tongues. The people come into Jerusalem to worship. They hear them preaching and proclaiming the glory of God and their native tongues. And, 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 and Peter starts preaching. He starts telling them that what they're hearing is what the prophet Joel prophesied, that in the last days, God's going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And, and everybody was going to prophesy and so, technically, biblically speaking, the last days is from Pentecost until the coming of Jesus. But in the last days, mysteries are, uh, are, are, are revealed. And this mystery, or mysterion in Greek, it carries a bit of a, a different idea in the Bible uh, than it does in our language today. I looked up the dec dictionary definition, the Merriam-Webster definition of mystery. And it, it gave me two definitions. The first one is something not understood or beyond finding out. A, a mystery is something that we have no capacity to be able to understand or to know. Secondly, a mystery was a piece of fiction dealing usually with the solution of a mysterious crime. And we all like those mystery crime shows on TV. right? But in the Bible, a mystery is something completely different. It was something that was unknown in the Old Testament, but has been revealed in the New Testament. It's a new revelation about God and his purposes that weren't previously known. Paul says uh, as much in verse 5. Look at verse 5. He, he defines what a mystery here is. Verse 4 ends uh, that he was given insight uh, into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Right, so a mystery, it wasn't known, and it's been revealed by the spirit to the apostles and prophets. Now there's many examples of these mysteries in the New Testament. For instance, in Romans 11, verse 25, we have the mystery of Israel's hardening. Right, that because of their rejection of the Messiah, there would be a partial hardening upon them until the fullness of the Gentiles was brought in. In 1 Corinthians 15.1, we read about the mystery of the rapture. The rapture of the church was nowhere mentioned in the Old Testament. I had no idea what that was. In Colossians 1.27, we read about the mystery of Christ in you. God indwelling people was a foreign concept in the Old Testament. Remember Jesus when he was talking about the parakletos, the, the helper, the Holy Spirit coming. He said that the Holy Spirit will be both with you and in you, right? They had no concept of the Holy Spirit actually being inside of them. 
In 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, there's the mystery of lawlessness. It's connected to the end times and the lawlessness under the rule of Antichrist that is to come. In 1 Timothy 3, 16, we hear about the mystery of the incarnation. The Messiah, God actually coming, becoming flesh. They didn't know about that in the Old Testament. In Revelation 17.5, we read about this mystery Babylon, this future one world order, one world government centered in Babylon. These were things that the saints of old had no idea about until they were revealed during the New Testament to the apostles and prophets by divine revelation. And this big mystery that Paul is unpacking to the church in Ephesus has to do with the truth of how both Jew and Gentile have been made one new man in the church of Christ. The mystery has to do with Gentiles becoming part of the covenant community and God's plan of redemption. Now, to be clear, uh, Gentiles could be saved in the Old Testament. It wasn't like... If you were a Gentile, there was no hope. There was no way for you to get into heaven. Can any of you tell me a Gentile in the Old Testament that was saved? Yeah. Melchizedek? You know, that's uh, an example, yeah. I don't know if he, he, uh, he was just a, an interesting guy. He was kind of saved on his own, but he was a Gentile, yeah. Huh? Rahab, yeah. Yeah, Rahab's an example of that. Um, Ruth, right? There's all kinds of examples in the Old Testament of people that got saved that, that were Gentiles. And that was always God's plan. God's plan wasn't for Israel to be an end to themselves, right? They were uh, supposed to be a meat. They were supposed to be a light to the nations and, and to be a source of blessing to the nation. In, in Genesis 12.3, God says this to Abraham. He says, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. But then all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right? Uh, there's going to be a blessing that's going to come upon the whole earth through, through Israel. In Isaiah 49.6, Isaiah writes, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to reserve the preserved ones of Israel. I will make you a light unto the nations so that my salvations may reach the ends of the earth. If there to be a light to the Gentiles, God's salvation wants to go to the ends of the earth. God's plan was always to seek and to save the lost throughout the entire world. So it's not a mystery that Gentiles could be saved. As we saw, there's always been Gentile proselytes to Judaism. The mystery is that both Gentiles and Jews would both need to become proselytes into a new man, into Christ. That Gentiles and Jewish people would need salvation. That's the mystery. The mystery was that there's this whole new thing, that a Gentile doesn't have to become a Jew to get saved. That both need to become Christians if they want to experience the grace of God, and the forgiveness of God. You see, God has set aside Judaism. Judaism is, is no longer a thing. The, the ordinances, the, the ceremonial laws, those are done away with. Those are fulfilled in Christ. The way that the Jewish people worshipped in the Old Testament is not the way that we worship now. You see, God isn't done with the Jews, he still has a plan for the people and the nation. You could read about that in Revelation and, and in uh, Romans chapters 9 through 11. But the system of worship presented in the Old Testament, he has done away with. An interesting verse in 2 Peter 3.15 and 16, Peter says this. He says, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them, these things in which some things are hard to understand. Peter's saying, hey, Paul read some things that are really hard to understand. And I think in our text this morning, we, or this evening, we definitely have things that are difficult to understand. Uh, this rabbit hole that Paul is, or rabbit show that Paul is taking us down, uh, is, uh, it's got some hard things. 
Now it's primarily concerned with doctrine and theology. Uh, I'm sorry, it has a lot of doctrine and theology in it, but I don't think that's what Paul's major concern was that he is trying to express. I don't think the heart of this passage is to teach some doctrine, to teach some theology. No, it's, it's much, much more personal than that. I think here Paul is trying to give his heart. If Paul is, he, he's learned his true calling. It's taken him a long time, but he's learned his purpose in life. He's learned what God's called him for. And, and, and he's trying to share that. He, he's sharing his purpose, which is to preach to the Gentiles and the unity of the Jew and Gentile in the church. So this morning, it's not primarily about theology or doctrine. We just spent three weeks talking about this doctrine of unity. If you missed that or you want to hear it, you can listen to the recordings. I'm thankful that Ryan records these and posts them. If you want to figure out how to get them, just scan the QR code. Uh, but tonight I want to look at this passage from the lens of a, a faithful missionary. Hence my title, The Pedigree of a Faithful Missionary. You know, Spurgeon said this in a sermon. He says, every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation for Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. It's convicting, but it's true. So for the next fill-in, fill-in example, the Apostle Paul is an example of a faithful missionary. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, or be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. And in our text, I've identified six things that we could imitate from the greatest missionary who ever lived. After Jesus, of course. But Paul, after Jesus, I think, is about as good as it gets. So for number one, fill in a faithful missionary follows the will of Christ. So fill in the word will. We'll look at verses 1 and 13. But let's look at verse 1 first. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. In this verse we learn that Paul is a prisoner of the king. He's a prisoner of Christ. For five years at the time he's writing this, he has been a prisoner. And might I remind you that Paul is writing this from custody in Rome. It's interesting. We might expect him to write, Paul, a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of Nero. But he doesn't. He writes that he's a prisoner of Christ. Jesus was the Lord of Paul's life. Uh, one cannot read the New Testament and come to any other conclusion than that. And Lord wasn't some nice cliche thing to Paul. He actually meant it. No matter where Paul was or whatever circumstances were brought into Paul's life, he saw them as being put there by the one who was sovereign over his life. And this is a great lesson for us. If we could learn to think about our situations, the places that we are, as Jesus being Lord of our life, and he's the one that has put us there, it'll do us great good. You see, when we complain about our circumstances or if we complain about where we are in life, who are we really complaining about? If you think about it, we're really complaining about God. He's the one who's sovereign over those circumstances. And when we complain about him, you know what we're saying? We're saying, hey, I know better than you, God. I know what's better for me than what you know. Because if I was God, I wouldn't allow this in my life. Or we're saying that what God hasn't given us isn't good enough. That God hasn't been fair to us. God hasn't been just to us. May we never say that. You see, Jesus had a purpose for Paul being in prison. You see, that, that's the great thing about looking at things from that lens of God's sovereignty is no matter where we're at, what we're going through, what we're doing, there's a purpose to it. You see, we re read in Paul's epistle to the Philippians that by Paul being in prison, being chained to these guards all day long, that the entire Praetorium Guard was getting saved. People were getting saved as they were chained to the Apostle Paul. 
Further, we don't have a chunk of the New Testament if Paul is in prison. From this prison that he's in in Rome, he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, four books of the New Testament we wouldn't have if Paul hadn't been in jail. You know, it would behoove us to think of our timeouts in this kind of life, to start listening for the voice of God. Paul was in jail, and, and he was listening to God. He was given revelation from God. The same thing is true of the Apostle John. John was on a penal colony, Patmos. He was sent there to die. And it was from that place that God gave him the greatest revelation ever, the, the book of Revelation. So whenever you're in a timeout, you're in a place that you don't want to be, you've been kind of set aside for a time, be open to God speaking to you. Start talking to God. Start reading the Bible. Start asking God to reveal things to you. And I'm willing to bet that he will. You see, it would have been easy for Paul to look at his incarceration as God moving, removing him from the ministry. You know, I, I just wasn't cutting it in the ministry, so God put me in prison, put me out of the ministry. You see, that's the way his opponents viewed it in Philippians 1, if you read it. They, 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 this guy, Paul, he blew it. He's in jail. His ministry's over. It's our turn. But that's not the way Paul saw it. And I'm glad he didn't. You see, Paul saw his incarceration as not just moving his ministry. It wasn't an end to his ministry. Now he's just ministering somewhere else and to different people. Now, we're not in jail. I, I know this because you're right here in front of me. You know, I don't think this is jail. I've been to jail. It doesn't look like this. Uh, however, I think we all go through these metaphorical jails. Maybe it's your job. Maybe you hate it. Maybe you don't want to be there. You want to be somewhere else. Maybe it's your living situation. Maybe you're still living at home and you just hate living at home. You know, I just want to be free. I want to have my own freedom. I want to be out on my own. Or maybe it's a condition or an illness you have and it's keeping you from doing what you really wish that you could be doing, but you can't because you don't have that freedom. Paul would say, turn your prison into a ministry. Where you're at, turn that into a ministry. Find, find that silver lining and, and turn it into something good. Redeem it is the idea. Our text tells us that Paul was in prison for the sake of the Gentiles. Right? Well, what does that mean? Paul was in prison for the sake of the Gentiles. Well, Paul was in prison literally for preaching uh, that the Gentiles and, and Jews were one in Christ. He was preaching the, the unity of the church. In the book of Acts, Paul, he comes, uh, he, he, Paul's living in Corinth and he's ministering to Gentiles. And there's a great need in Jerusalem. The, the believers there are really being persecuted. They're, they're having a really hard time. And so Paul takes up a collection and, and he gathers these funds and he's taking them to Jerusalem to take them to this church of Jewish believers. Now, in Jerusalem, I just want to say this, that they hate Paul. They absolutely hate him, the Jews do. But he brings this gift there to Jerusalem, and he's going to take it to the church. But there's a problem. He brings this Greek guy, Trophimus, with him. And remember, they start accusing him, saying, hey, that he brought Trophimus into the temple. He crossed that barrier wall that he wasn't supposed to cross with Trophimus. Now, this wasn't true, but it stirred up a riot. People started going crazy. Paul started getting beaten. The soldiers had to come in and rescue him. They arrest him. And as Paul is being taken away to the barracks, he asks, hey, could I, could I say a few words? And he starts preaching to these Jewish people, this audience that he has. And he starts uh, telling them about their history and, and his testimony and, and, and telling them about Jesus. And they're fine with that. But then he tells them how God is being gracious to the Gentiles. And they lose it. They start rioting all the more. They want to kill Paul all of the more. And, and anyways, he goes in and, and, and they plan to assassinate him. So he has to be transported from Jerusalem to Caesarea Philippi, where he stands trial between Festus and Felix and uh, Agrippa. And then he ends up going to Rome, where he's under house arrest for a couple more years. All this for preaching the unity of Jew and Gentile. Paul's been in prison for at least five years. When I was in Israel last, I, I got asked by this little young girl. She was really sweet. And 
and became friends with her and was talking to her quite a bit over a few days. And anyway, uh, we, we started talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I said, I, I, I kind of look at it like a bad marriage. And she was like, oh, don't, don't, don't say that. that's a marriage. She, she was super offended at the idea that a Jew and a Palestinian could be married or could be one. You see, that's that same kind of animosity that was felt during the time of Paul in the first century. In verse 13, Paul says, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulation on your behalf, for they are for your glory. You see, even in prison, Paul was concerned with shepherding God's people. See, this is absolutely amazing to me, but this is what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God, when we're Spirit-filled, it makes us regard others above ourselves, esteem others above ourselves. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2, right? And then he tells us to have this mind in ourselves that was in Christ Jesus. Remember that night that Jesus is going to be betrayed and arrested? What did he spend the night doing? Ministering to the disciples, praying for the disciples. We have a John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Even on the cross, he's being tortured to death. And he's ministering to the people. Saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's looking at the Apostle John and saying, Behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. And caring for his mom, even as he's dying on the cross. You see, our tendency when we're suffering is, to become selfish. and Hey, look at me. Look what I'm going through. Come help me. But that's not what the spirit-filled person does. It, it does the opposite. It focuses on others and it ministers to them. You know, I've also found that this place of hurt is the most effective pulpit to minister from. Your pain becomes your pulpit. Your misery becomes your ministry is the idea. So Paul being in prison is God's will for him, and he found a purpose and peace by continuing to minister. For number two, fill in the word understands. A faithful missionary understands the message of Christ. In verse two through six, it says, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you uh, read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verses 2 through 6, Paul is talking about the stewardship that was revealed to him. He then talks about how he's entrusted with this, ministry, this mystery or this doctrine. And verse 6 gives us the content of the mystery. It says, to be specific, that Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Uh, again, I'm not going to unpack what this mystery is. You can go back and listen to chapter 2 if you're one. However, I do want to highlight that this Mystery came to Paul by revelation from God. Paul was given a, a stewardship of it. He dedicated his life to it. He's in prison for it. You see, if we're going to be effective in service, we need to make sure we have more than passion and zeal for us. We need to have right doctrine too. We need to get the right gospel right. We need to get the message right that everyone, no matter who they are, where they come from, Whatever they've done can be welcomed in the family of God through the gospel of Christ Jesus. That is the message. That through the gospel, through the cross of Christ, through repenting and believing in that, you could have eternal life with God. You could be welcomed into the family of God. You see, false gospels like the prosperity gospel tell people what they want to hear, but they're impotent to save anybody. If you think about it, you have people that get saved. We often see this where uh, there's some celebrity. He gets saved, and right away the church wants to put him on a platform, so sharing his story and things like that, instead of taking time to disciple him. And that's not good for the church, and it's not good for that person. You see, the church, he's going to say things that aren't true. He's going to spread false doctrine. He's going to lead people astray. 
And then when he, he, he goes and, and he starts trying to share doctrine and things like that, people are going to confront him and he's going to get confused and he's going to give up. It's going to end up hurting him. You see, we need to see right doctrine as something that has been entrusted to us. It's a stewardship. We need to guard it. We need to contend for it. In Jude 3, it says we need to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. That contending for the faith, that's not your own personal faith in Christ Jesus. That is the right body of doctrine. It's the apostles' doctrine. It's the apostles' teaching. We need to guard that. We need to fight for it because that's what we got. If we don't have that, we don't have anything to unify together with. If we're going to be faithful missionaries, we need to be men and women of the Bible. Uh, point number three, a faithful missionary is overwhelmed by the grace of God. Overwhelmed by the grace of God. In verse seven, Paul says, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. You see, those who are the best missionaries are the ones who are aware of how much grace they've received. We can't give out what we don't have. That's just a simple fact. You see, grace is such an important term for believers. We're saved by grace. You can't earn it. We're placed in the body of Christ by grace. Therefore, we receive our ministry by grace. We progress in the faith by grace. It's all of grace. Think about Paul. Why would he be called to be the apostle to the Gentiles? Why should he be the guy that preaches the unity of both Jew and Gentile? I mean, it really doesn't make much sense when you look at Paul's own testimony. I'm going to read us a couple of passages of Paul giving his testimony, and you'll see why. In Philippians 3, 5 through 7, he says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 14. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he has considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Paul's the guy who was going out persecuting Christians. He was arresting Christians. He was having them killed. He hated Christians, and yet he's the guy that God is going to call to preach grace to the Gentiles. He's the one that's called to bring to unity the Jew and the Gentile. It makes no sense. Paul had uh, obtained official documents to persecute the church. He, he was on his way to arrest and to kill Christians when God literally knocked him off his horse. But by the grace of God, that was the position that was given to him. Can I tell you something? God still calls pastors. He still calls missionaries by grace. You can't earn the position of pastor. You can't earn the position of missionary. God chooses. God's sovereign. God graciously does that. You know, uh, Paul, the more he progressed in his life, the more he understood his need for grace, the more under, he understood how much grace was given to him. For instance, uh, Paul wrote uh, one of the first books Paul wrote was to the Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles. Out of all the apostles, I'm the least of them because I persecuted the church. Here in Ephesians, he wrote that a few years later. He says, I am the least of the saints. And before he's going to die, he writes a swan song, right? Second Timothy. He's writing to Timothy, and he says in First Timothy 1.15, he says, I am the chief sinner. He went from being the least of the apostles to the least of the saints to being the chief sinner. So the longer that Paul walked with Christ, the more he knew that he was in need of grace. 
It wasn't that he he was still committing these awful sins that he was when he got saved. He just, the closer he got to Christ, the more of a reality of his sinful nature he discovered. The more he discovered that he wasn't Jesus and he was in need of the grace of Jesus. See, we don't outgrow our need for grace. On the contrary, the closer we get to Jesus, the more we realize we need grace. The more we realize how much grace God is giving us. So if we're going to be effective missionaries, we need to know or we need to be those who bask in grace ourselves. Our, mission, our message should be, look at how much grace the Lord has given me. He could give it to you too. You see, what do people accuse Christians of? Of coming and talking down to them. Like, I got it figured out. You're a sinner. God hates you. You're, you're a homosexual. So whatever. And, and that. You need to repent. No, that shouldn't be our message. Our message is, hey, I'm just a, a beggar who found bread. I want to show you where it is too. I needed the grace of God just as much as you do, and he's given me more than I could need, and it's overflowing to you is the idea. Number four, a faithful missionary proclaims the incalculable riches of Christ. Proclaims, verses 8b and 9. He says, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. You see, we need to be those that are constantly boasting about who God is. In our speech, we should make much of Jesus and the grace he has given us. We need to... I'm sorry, Paul says that we are to preach, or he preaches the unfathomable riches of Christ. See, we can't run out of things to preach or to say about Jesus. He's an infinite being. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, how could you talk about omnipotence and, and, and exhaust it? He has all the power in the world. He has all the wisdom in the world. He, he, he's, he's infinite. We should never run out of things to say about him. If we're filled with the Spirit and we're in the Bible, we should be able to talk to Jesus, talk about Jesus for days. I've often been asked, how could I get better at evangelism? How could I be better at witnessing? How could I be a better preacher of Jesus is the idea. And my answer is always the same. It's to read more Bible. Spend more time in your Bible. That's what's going to make you the most effective. You see, the times in my life where I'm spending the most time in the Bible and engaging the scriptures the most are the times that I'm sharing Jesus the most. It's a pr pretty simple concept when you think about it. You know, what goes in is what comes out of us. Anyone who's ever changed a diaper before understands that principle. Well, I have this little friend, he's about five years old, uh, this little guy, I, I love him to death. Anyways, he, he's kind of different. He, he's really limited in his diet, the things that he'll eat. And probably the main thing he eats are those, uh, those blue Takis. Have you seen those? I think they're disgusting, but he absolutely loves them. He eats like two bags a day. Well, his poop is blue. He, he literally poops blue because of that. You know, can I tell you something? We need to be like my little friend Jackson. Not that we need to be consuming puppies till we poop blue, but we need to be consuming the Bible so much until that's what's coming out of us. It's just natural. As we talk, we talk about Jesus. That's who we talk about. Spurgeon used to tell his students that they need to bleed Bibline, that they should have so much Bible in them that if they get cut, it's Bibline that comes out of them. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, Paul says this, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superior speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and, his, and him crucified. You know, Paul, at the time he's writing this, he's in prison. He's, he's under house arrest. He's in Rome. And the way that that worked was uh, these soldiers from the Praetorium Guard would come. And every four to six hours, there would be a new soldier that would be chained to the Apostle Paul. And they would be chained to each other for the four to six hours. And then at the end of that time, somebody else would come and they would switch him out. Do you think these soldiers ever thought about, I wonder what Paul and I are going to talk about today? 
I wonder how this time with Paul is going to go today. No, they're, they're probably thinking, man, this guy's just going to keep talking about Jesus. That's all he talks about is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We need to persevere in preaching Christ. So we need to be a one-track record. Everybody should know that when they're around us, that they're going to hear about Jesus. Yeah, some people are going to be annoyed. Some people may treat us badly. Remember, Paul's in jail for preaching Jesus, for preaching this thing. However, some are going to get saved. Because it was the Praetorian Guard, all these soldiers ended up getting saved, Paul tells us in Philippians 1. I have this family that I, I've been really good friends with. Uh, the patriarch of the family, he's now with the Lord, is actually my drug dealer, who's the guy who introduced me to Jesus back in the day. Uh, anyways, I, I, I became really close with this family. I began to know Jesus. I stopped doing drugs. And God started working in my life, and then he stopped selling drugs and doing drugs, and God started working in him, and all of that. But a bunch of his kids that are around my age, they, they weren't saved they, at all. And during that time, I started talking about Jesus more and more. And they would make fun of me. They would, you know, kind of say hard things to me and treat me badly because of it. But I just kept doing it. And because of that, over the years, one by one, I started seeing them start to express interest in God. Start to place faith in Jesus. Start to commit themselves to Jesus. In fact, one of them, this guy Nathan, he's, he was the hardest one. He was, he was the one who was like the most rude and ruthless in the way he treated me for following Jesus. Just a few weeks ago, I was, I was over there and my friend Zeb goes, hey, let's watch the Jesus Revolution. And I was like, great. And just then his brother Nathan walks in. And I'm like, oh, this isn't going to be but at the end of the movie, he's like, wow. He was like, that was great. Can you tell me more about this? I've been thinking about going to a church. Can, 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 can you help me find a good one? And, and I was blown away. I never expected that. But if we remain persistent, faithful, just keep preaching Jesus, keep preaching Jesus, we don't know what he's going to do with it. And ultimately, all that's going to matter is when we face our judgment is how faithful we were with the message. Might I remind you that Jeremiah preached God and preached repentance for over 50 years, and he only had two converts. At the judgment day, is it going to matter that only two people responded favorably to his preaching? No, what's going to matter is that he was faithful with the message over and over and over again. Number five, a faithful missionary has a high view of the church of Christ. Look at verse 10. He says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul says he wants the manifold or multifaceted wisdom of God to be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places places. Remember I told you guys in the beginning that Peter says that there's some things about Paul that are kind of hard to understand? Well, this is kind of where the rubber's hitting the road, so to speak. Who are these rulers and authorities in heavenly places? Well, according to the rest of the New Testament, they're angelic beings, and both good and bad angels, angels and demons. You see, in the apocryphal books like uh, Enoch, angels are called watchers because they're, they're watching us. They're watching God's informal drama of redemption progress through history. And Paul says that the church is supposed to be a witness, a testimony to these angelic beings. Wow. I like what uh, John MacArthur says. He says, the angels can see the power of God in creation, the wrath of God, at Sinai and the love of God at Calvary. But above all, they see his manifold, his multicolored, multifaceted wisdom that is made known through the church. They see him taking Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, who together murdered the Messiah and were worthy of only hell, and making them, by that very cross of murder, one spiritual body in Christ Jesus. They see him breaking down every barrier, every wall that divides, and making all believers one in an indivisible, intimate, and eternal union with the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit and every other believer from every other age and circumstance. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God. Whenever one sinner repents, Jesus says in Luke 15.10, every sinner who repents and turns to Christ adds another spiritual stone to God's temple, another member of his body, and becomes another forgiven and cleansed sinner who is made eternally one with every other forgiven and cleansed sinner. The angels not only are interested in the salvation of men, but constantly watch the face of God in heaven to see his reaction to the treatment of his saved earthly children, standing ready to carry out any mission in their behalf. Wow, that is so well said. I like what uh, John Stott says about this. He says, in the classroom of God's universe, he is the teacher, the angels are the students, the church is the illustration, and the subject is the manifold wisdom of God. You see, the church, some people think that the church is good for others, but they don't feel that they need to take membership seriously. The New Testament positions it as our fundamental identity. Belonging to a church should be more important than where you go to school, where you go to work, or what club you belong to. I often talk to people that are moving to a different city. And, and this is the advice that I give them. Before they move, before they pick their house, they find the people that they want to worship with. Find the community of believers that they want to call their family. Find a church that they want to be a part of. And then choose your house close to that church. You know, don't just find the house you want and hope that there's a church around it that's good. No, make the church be the priority. It should be. You know, back when I was in pastor school, I was asked this question. They asked why I go to church. And I said, that's easy. I go to church because I want to see more of God. I want to experience more of God. You see, because every single person in the church is filled with the Spirit of God. God is working in their life. God is doing things. And so as we come together as a body, as we spend time together, as we have nights like today, what we're actually seeing is God. We're experiencing God, the Spirit of God through each other. We're hearing about what God's doing in each other's life. We're getting a greater picture of who God is and what God does. I absolutely love the church, and I pray that you guys do too. But number six, our last one, a faithful missionary draws near to God through Christ. So Philan draws near. Look at verse 12. It says, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. You see, the, the nearness that we believers can experience to God far exceeds that of the old covenant. See, in the old covenant, they had to bring uh, sacrifices, they had to go through washings, they had to progress through different areas of the sanctuary, they couldn't actually go into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. But Christians could boldly approach God because of Christ. We could boldly come to his throne of grace and receive mercy and grace in a time of need, Paul, the writer of Hebrews says. But Paul says in Ephesians 2.18, for through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Both Jew and Gentile, in the dispensation of grace, have access to God. We could come boldly into God's throne of grace. In Saudi Arabia, according to Arab custom, reinforced by a 1952 degree of King Abdul Aziz, every subject has the right to access the right of access to his ruler, whether the ruler is a tribal sheik, a governor, or a monarch himself, to present petitions of complaint or pleas for help. Even the poorest Saudi can approach his sovereign to plead his cause. Crown Prince Fahd, uh, speaking about this custom, said, anyone can come here. That gives them the confidence in their government. They know that they may look for us, look to us for help. Every Christian has the right to approach an even greater monarch, the King of Kings. We have access. Do we take advantage of it? Is the question. You know, faithful missionaries are always men and women of prayer 
They love prayer. They live by prayer. They have lives that are marked by prayer. If you are a Christian and you pray in Christ's name, you could pray with boldness because we know we have access and the Father hears us, Jesus tells us. You know, I'm convinced that Paul spent more time talking to God than he did anywhere else. This very next passage at the end of chapter 3, it's, it's a prayer Paul gets. All throughout the New Testament, we have the prayers of Paul. Paul was a man of prayer. He enjoyed talking to God. Now, God doesn't always answer the prayers the way we want, but he always answers our prayers. I doubt Paul prayed that he would be in prison, prison to preach to the guards. I'm, I'm sure that that was never a prayer request. Hey, God, just send me to prison so I can convert some guards. He wanted to go to Rome. That was the goal. That was the goal of his mission. That was the goal of his life. But God answered his prayer. He got him to Rome just in a different way than he thought. I like this. This is called the soldier's prayer. It says, I ask God for strength that I may achieve. I was made weak that I may learn humbly to obey. I ask for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I may enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. Martin Luther said this at the height of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther is the guy leading the Reformation. He says this, he says, I have so much to do that I must spend the first three hours of every day in prayer. You know, people tell me I'm too busy. I got too many things to do. I got so much going on. I don't have time for prayer. And I tell them, if you got all that going on, you need more time in prayer. You got more things to pray for. Maybe we don't have time and we feel stressed out and we feel too busy because we're not praying. So we're striving. We're not working in the spirit. There's a story long ago of a couple who said to their home church that they're about to leave for an African mission field known as the white man's grave. The husband said, my wife and I have a strange dread in growing and going. We feel as much as if we are going down into a pit. We are willing to take the risk and go though if our home church will promise to hold the ropes. One and all promise to do so. Less than two years had passed when the wife and the little one God had given the couple succumbed to a dreaded fever. Soon the son, or soon the husband realized his days were also numbered. Not waiting to send word of his coming, he started back home. And once he arrived at the time of the Wednesday prayer meeting, he slipped in unnoticed, taking a seat in the back. At the close of the meeting, he went forward and awe came over the people for death was written on his face. He said, I am your missionary. My wife and child are buried in Africa, and I have come home to die. This evening I listened anxiously as you prayed for some mention of your missionary to see if you were keeping your promise, but in vain. You prayed for everything connected with yourselves in your home circle, but you forgot your missionary. I see now why I am a failure as a missionary. It's because you have failed to hold the ropes. So we don't just pray for our service. We need to be praying for the missionaries as well. We are one body. When one member suffers, we all suffer. When one member is exalted, we're all exalted. When, when one part of the church is doing good, it affects the rest of us. And maybe our missionaries aren't having the success that God wants them to have on the mission field because not because of their unfaithfulness, not because of them being unprepared, but because of the church at home, not taking their mission seriously. What a tragedy. But Paul says we have access. We could come boldly to the throne of grace. We could pray. We could go to God whenever we want. Amen. So, Father, 
I do thank you for this passage, Lord. I thank you for the truths you've taught us, Lord. And I know my brothers and sisters here and I, we want to be better in service to you. We want to be faithful. We want to be effective. And, and I pray that we're able to take these things that we've seen in Paul's life, these characteristics of Paul, and apply them to ourselves, Lord. I pray in the next couple days that you would speak to each one of us and you would tell us, you pinpoint what we need to improve on and you'd give us the grace to do so, Lord. And we'd be open to that correction from you. If we're honest, we all need your grace. None of us are perfect. None of us are, are doing these things to the full. And we all have a way to go, Lord. And I pray that you would just help us to do that, help us to grow in whatever way you would want us to. So reveal that to us and give us that grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.